Hey, I'm Esther. I support managers and leaders to create great environments for great work. I've spent the last four decades leading, living, and observing change in both large and small organizations. And hi, I'm Victor. I coach systems in Agile. And I work with organizations of different sizes, helping them deal with context-specific challenges. And welcome to The Law of Jam, a podcast for people who care about systems thinking, agile, leadership, and management. Hey, and welcome to episode 17 of The Law of Jam. How are you doing, Esther? I'm okay. I've been making lots of jam this summer. How about you? I am good. I'm excited about today's episode. Me too. So in this episode, we're going to talk about the implications of this trend we've seen with the decreasing number of generalists in tech. Now, the argument about, you know, whether you should have specialists or generalists, whether one is more valuable than the other, has been going on forever. And the answer is, of course, it depends on what you're trying to do. So when we were first mulling over our ideas for this episode, we came across this book called Range by David Epstein. And this book explores generalization and specialization. And it was super interesting. It confirmed some of our thinking and also gave at least me new insights and new language to talk about specialization versus generalization. But I've noticed that the default in more and more organizations is to hire specialists and more and more specialized specialists. Have you noticed that, Victor? Yes. I've even been encouraged by past managers to specialize further to get education that really, really shows how specialized I am. Hmm. I got a call once in the middle of the evening from my manager saying, hey, Victor, I've been thinking about you this weekend, and I know now what we can do to make you even more attractive to our clients. And he wanted to send me back to the university and to take a computer science education. (laughs) And I resisted that, and I've continued to resist that. Well, I think it's more easy for people to figure out what to do when they have a really narrow label on somebody. Oh, we know what you can do, rather than, you know, you can help with a lot of things. You know, when I started as a programmer, it was actually really rare to meet someone with a computer science degree, um, which isn't so surprising since computer science degree programs weren't particularly common before the late 60s. So the first computer sci graduates would have been getting out of college around the time I started programming. And there were a lot of people who had been programming for years But for the most part, they came to programming from some other kind of work or some other kind of educational background. And I knew programmers who had been police officers, air traffic controllers, English majors, music majors, philosophy majors, but almost everyone had studied some other field or done some other kind of work that was really different before they came to programming. And I think that's becoming less common, even though boot camps are opening up programming to people who don't have computer science or software engineering degrees. But it seems like a lot of people are going to boot camp to start their first career, not as a second or third, which is in some ways exacerbating the problem of missing generalists. And when we talk about generalists, we talk about people who have been exposed to many different fields and disciplines. And they have multiple approaches to problems or mental frameworks, you might say. So they tend to be able to see similarities in the structure of problems, and they can then apply the approach that fits the type of problem that they're exposed to. So they shift according to the context they're in. 
So I remember a few years back, I was on a panel at a community college, and it was for people who were retraining to be network admins. And one guy on the panel kept insisting that the people who are graduating from this program were only qualified for the most junior entry-level positions. So I started asking the people in the audience to share what they'd done before they'd entered this program, because most of them were not young people. They were people who'd been in the workplace for 10 or 15 years. And there was a guy who had managed a grocery store, so he knew a lot about managing people and inventory and inventory theory, which is related to queuing theory. And even if he didn't know the term queuing theory, he, he grasped it. I mean, he knew about dealing with customers and responding to customer needs. Another had been a teacher, so she knew about managing group dynamics and the process of learning. Another had designed precision parts, so he knew a lot about understanding requirements and where you had to be really detailed and when you didn't have to be so detailed and quality processes. So many of these people had really interesting backgrounds that would have been super valuable working in an organization and solving problems. But yet there's this idea because they are young in this particular skill, they are beginners at everything and this knowledge doesn't get used. These huge swaths of knowledge and experience are just overlooked because they were beginners at that specialty, which I think is really short-sighted. And they had different problem-solving approaches and a lot of what I call white space skills the stuff that doesn't show up in a job description, but it's really essential for functioning well. I mean, it's like I've always said, learning more than one programming language makes you a better developer because each language is optimized to solve certain sorts of problems. And the more programming languages you know, the more approaches to problems you have. Yes. However, today, despite knowing multiple programming languages, many programmers are still specialists. Mm-hmm. So sure, knowing multiple programming languages makes you a more generalized programmer than someone that knows one. But if you contrast one programmer that knows two languages with, for example, one programmer that knows one language and the examples you gave about someone who's run a store or someone who's been a teacher, the picture of who is a generalist and who's a specialist changes a little bit. Yeah, I absolutely agree. And when we talk about specialists here, we refer to people that have a more narrow range of problem-solving strategies. And this is, you know, fine, especially if the problem that they're dealing with is within their field and it's a very narrow or specific field. But many problems we have today and that we have to solve in organizations are novel. We don't have access to the data that we want. Things may be shifting as we work on them. And procedures that work in a static space are not going to work in a space that changes a lot. So we have to be able to recognize something about the structure of a problem as well and how they differ from each other. Yeah, so when you have a novel problem, one thing you can do is reason by analogy. And that's related to having a bunch of different experiences. So you can take the problem and examine it from multiple perspectives based on your experiences. You know, how similar is it? How different is it from something that you have seen in another domain? And this is actually how some really original thinkers have worked. They work by analogy, especially when they don't have data. So we make these assertions about specialists and generalists. One is not better than the other. 
However, more and more problems are of the sort that require generalist perspectives. And unfortunately, our society, education systems, and corporate hiring seem to be rewarding people to become more and more specialized, even at very early ages and even very early in their careers. And generalists are adept at repurposing approaches and solutions from one area to another, which can lead to innovation. Two additional assertions are that if you have sticky problems, generalists will have an advantage over specialists. And sticky problems refers to things that, despite your attempts to solve them, just remain. And additionally then, so if you're hiring, the assertion we want to make is to not discount someone whose resume may seem a bit scattered. That means that they've been sampling and they come with different experiences and approaches that can and will be valuable if you have these sticky or novel problems. So I've been talking to a bunch of people about this book, and almost uniformly people have said, I feel so much better about my rather scattered resume after hearing about this book. I can remember when I've been hiring early in my career or interviewing, and I have discounted scattered resumes myself. Hmm? And I have these thought experiments about like, whoa, I wonder what would have happened if we would have brought in this person to do this role. We would probably have changed a lot of things and... That might have been really good. Mm -hmm. Okay, so in the book range, the author talks about kind domains and wicked domains. Now, in the kind domains, patterns repeat over and over. There's feedback, it's accurate, and it's usually rapid. So you can reapply a solution that has worked in the past. Now, in wicked domains, the rules are unclear or they're incomplete. And patterns may exist, but they're not obvious. There may be feedback or there may not be feedback, But it's not going to be necessarily speedy, and it's not necessarily going to be accurate. So kind domains and wicked domains are two different types of problem domains. Where would you say most of your work ends up being, Victor? In the wicked domains. (laughs) Yes. Yeah. Where would you say it's for you? So I was just thinking about that, because I think most of the problems are, if you look at them in a certain time span, they're wicked. But if you look at them over a much longer period of time, you do see patterns repeating. So, I mean, that's part of what I often do when there's one of these sort of wicked domains is I try to expand the temporal view. And sometimes they're just wicked. So all of this has some impacts on learning. And specialists tend to increase their siloed learnings where generalists can bridge silos. So siloed learning is probably not going to be useful if you're facing existential threats to your business. And it probably won't support creative new solutions when the customer problems are complex or require innovation. But on the other hand, when problems have been identified to be local or predictable, bridging silos and bringing in many perspectives can actually add confusion rather than helping people solve the problem. So I have a story. I was working in an organization where marketing wanted the users to open their app every week. And so they thought that the way we can do this is by, you know, adding push notifications, despite or in spite of customer preference. So like a customer might say, we don't want push notifications, but we should just ignore that. Now, an iOS developer talked about this from a customer perspective. 
and like you know this is in how customers interact with apps or technology and you know we need to find a different way of thinking about this maybe we need to rethink our marketing approach or our business model or our content portfolio so that we present content in a different way or in different channels now in one sense because he knew how to solve the problem he could have solved the problem the way it was asked for by programming it but his knowledge of design marketing and behavioral science led him to see different approaches so he was the generalist in this sense and he helped this marketing department find better approaches to how they would get customers to interact more often with the app that's super interesting and it seems kind of obvious that his broad background led him to that conclusion whereas somebody who might have been more specialized in just new programming as a solution would have pushed it in a different direction there are some attributes and differences with specialists and generalists and i thought let's just walk through them so if we look at generalists they have access to multiple problem solving perspectives and they have experience from many different unrelated fields this enables them to easily see problems across specializations they can enable groups to find a common language they create coherence across fields engage multiple perspectives enable radical repurposing of ideas which you talked about when you talked about these existential threats and when we need to innovate they also can solve problems that require healthy specialization when they get support and they can also understand low abstraction context but when they get support so that's the two areas where they need support heavy specialization problem solving and then understanding low abstraction what about specialists well they have a deep knowledge about their field and they know in depth the problem solving perspectives that are relevant for that field so they're really good at solving problems that are within their domain that don't span across domains and they can converse very easily with people within their specialty sometimes in ways that are not understandable to people outside the specialty so they can solve really difficult problems fast within their field they might need a little support to develop a shared language outside of their domain when they're working with people who have other specialties or people who are generalists and they might not see problems that can be solved with other approaches they might need some support to create coherence across a system and they might not necessarily see the implications of solving a problem within their specialty and how that might ripple out across other areas of the organization. So I think when you look at those two things together you can see that you really do need both. So one of the things that we've advocated for and a lot of people in the agile world advocate for is T-shaping or having a specialty but then having some near neighbor skills where you're not necessarily a specialist but you're competent. So when you're actively working on a team like that, you also actively need to work to maintain a shared language. As people learn those near neighbor skills and widen their profiles or deepen it, they develop a different language and that enables people to talk across specialties and to build coherence. So as a coach or a manager, I think it's really important to value both specialists and generalists. 
and learn to recognize the difference and be aware of when to shift the lens so that you can enable the generation of shared insights and reduce the effort of communication across specializations. You can also coordinate efforts that stretches across specializations if you know that there are few generalists or if you are aware that there are different languages in use between the different groups that exist. Additionally, you can help people develop in a way that fits the current and future context. So if the context is wicked, focus on areas that are completely unrelated, rather than maybe sending off someone to know more about their specific language. Try something completely different and see what happens. And very related, encourage people to read outside of their field. It will expand their understanding and maybe give them more problem-solving approaches. So do you see yourself as a specialist or a generalist? I used to think generalist, but had a conversation with a VP in the beginning or middle of Corona, and he said that, oh, yes, it must be so nice, Victor, you're a specialist, and you'll always be able to get a job whenever you want it. Then I started thinking about, hmm, am I a specialist or a generalist? Well, how was he defining specialist? I think just expert in one field. So he thinks I'm really good at what I do, and therefore I must be a specialist. <laughs> I would assert that you are really good at your job because you're a generalist and you can bring many different approaches. What about yourself? How do you see yourself? Yeah, I definitely see myself as a generalist. I mean, I've spent my career in software, but my undergrad degree is art history. And I sampled a lot of majors before I landed on that. And I've read a lot of stuff outside my profession. I mean, I read a lot of medieval history, which may not seem relevant, but what it tells me is that what is going on in an organization has echoes of the past in it. So understanding something about the history of the group and a company is really important. I mean, I've studied Virginia Satir's work for 30 years. I'm married to an ecologist, so I've learned a lot about the natural world and geology just by that association. So I know a lot about natural processes that actually translate in some ways to organizations, not because I've studied that field, but because I've had so many conversations. And within software, I've done a bunch of different roles. So yeah, I think of myself as a generalist. That is interesting. And we can't really see these things about each other. Mm -mm. I never got a university degree. I never really knew what I wanted to study, and I sampled broadly. I studied some toxicology, some project management, org theory, and then like all the agile courses afterwards. <laughs> but I worked a lot, and I read in my spare time. I read things I found interesting, and I didn't really realize how diverse my background was until we were in pre-production of this episode and I was listing it. Like I've been working in a video store, I've been in the army, I've been a security guard, I own a bread store, I've been a content handler, device tester, an audiometrist under supervision if we have any like oppositions listening <laughs> I was a bartender. I've been a substitute teacher for neurodiverse students, a kindergarten teacher. But I think my first educational environment had a huge impact. I went to a school with children that weren't from Sweden, you know, where I live. So I went to school with children of expats. So it was really a non-normative cultural experience. Like there wasn't a right or wrong. Everyone was different and the school worked with inclusiveness. So I think that has really impacted my entire life. And, you know, I don't think I've stopped sampling. Neither have I. Okay, so we want to send you off with three questions now that might be able to generate some new insights for you. The first is, how do you see yourself as a generalist or a specialist? 
and at your work are problems more closely related to the kind domain where they're repeatable and there are feedback loops or do you think they're more wicked where it's novel and there might not always be feedback and if there is feedback it's not necessarily accurate or even speedy and then if you think about your team how is it comprised is it mostly generalists specialists a mix of both so there are three questions you can think about and let us know yeah well, that's it for this episode. Go out and read Range. It's a super interesting book. And think about what else you might want to learn to expand your options. Thanks. And until next time, see you later. Bye-bye. Bye-bye.